0: everybody welcome to episode number 425 of gun freedom radio where we engage we educate and we inform we are brought to you by azfirearmsauctions.com where you set the price on guns ammo and accessories And today is our first in an upcoming series of interviews with the ladies of the Independent Women's Forum. I am proud to announce that in July of this year, I was inducted as a visiting fellow at the IWF, and we want to use this series to introduce you to all of the important and varied work that the IWF does. I am one of your hosts, Cheryl Todd.
2: And I'm the other guy, Dan Todd. Our guest today is Michelle Steeb. Michelle is the author of Answers Behind the Red Door, Battling the Homeless Epidemic.
0: In 2006, Michelle joined a struggling shelter for homeless women and children and transformed it into one of the nation's beacons of success by actively addressing and overcoming the root causes of homelessness. Her written work has been published in the Washington Post, USA Today, Newsweek, and the New York Post. And now Michelle is a visiting fellow as I am at the Independent Women's Forum. Welcome to the show, Michelle.
1: Oh, so glad to be here with y'all and look forward to our discussion.
0: Absolutely. So talk to us about tackling homelessness. It seems like this just insurmountable, never-ending thing. The Bible has told us that the poor will always be among us, right? So what how do we work through it? And maybe starting with how did it become a passion for you?
1: I think the best way to sum up uh, my uh, now passion for homelessness, the passion I've had for the last 20 years is uh, one of my favorite sayings in the world. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. I was a... uh, Vice President of the California Chamber of Commerce, running their public affairs, loved my job, loved the people I worked with, and uh, and God had a different plan. I, uh, through my church, joined the board of a struggling shelter for women and children called St. John's Shelter at the time. And... I saw very quickly that uh, the the shelter needed a lot more business acumen, both at the staff level and at the board level. So I uh, took it upon myself to recruit uh, some more uh, board members who helped fill that void. And as I was touring with one of them in December of 2006, uh, touring St. John's, I got a call on my BlackBerry at the time, back when we had Blackberries, <laughs> and uh, and it was the board chair saying that the shelter, where I actually was, right where I was actually touring, uh, that the shelter uh, had not been able to meet payroll. Uh, they bounced two employees' payroll checks. The food truck was not going to come because we hadn't paid our bill in way too long. And the executive director was on vacation for two weeks, unreachable. And the bookkeeper who was shouldering all this burden, uh, this, you know, was just like within eight hours, he decided to resign. Oh, God! So I I mean, literally, this was my, you know, uh, in, in my ear for about 30 seconds, all these things. So I said to the board chair at the time, I said, you know, we're a very small organization why don't i pull the staff together because they are very likely know all this i mean you know they were all working in the same very small office you know let's let's you know while i'm here let's take advantage of the fact that you know uh, there's a, a board member here let's address uh, them and 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 share what we know now and and also share that you know they need to keep doing their jobs while we take care of what our job is, which is, you know, how to work uh, our way out of this situation. So I did, and he agreed, and I did that. And in that, you know, uh, I don't even know, five minutes, 10 minutes of discussion with the staff, I had a very strong calling that I needed to uh, step in here in a much bigger way. So I went back to, on my way back to the office, the California chamber, I, you know, called the board chair and I said, you know, here's how it went, but I need to tell you, I I really feel a need to step in, in a bigger way. Uh, He asked me what that meant. I didn't know my husband was on a plane to New York. So I was leaving him messages and uh, went in to talk to my boss at the time, the CEO, And I said, you know, I I really think I need to uh, leave and go fix this. And he he gave me some great advice. He said, you know, just take the month of December as vacation, you know, go in, get them squared away and come back in January. And I agreed to do that um, because I, you know, I really wanted to make sure I wasn't, you know, reacting in some, you know, in some inappropriate way. Uh, But anyway, I knew then, and I knew on January 2nd, when I went back into his office, that my uh, life would be changing for, you know, the better, uh, and my career, uh, you know, would follow that.
0: That is so crazy, this story. It's the whole thing. I'm thinking this is a perfect storm of everything falling apart, and- you just happened to be standing there at that yes. time, and you had the the skills and the wherewithal that that had to be God's hand. There is just no Absolutely. way that undoubtedly,
1: undoubtedly, that is amazing.
0: And you
2: and you fixed it in a month.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow! Well, I took thirteen years to um, to build it into something much uh, wow. more effective and much more stable. But, you know, that work is never done, right? Um, just like we're never done as people, right? Uh, organizations are never done. And I, I look forward to talking to you about that 13-year journey as well.
2: Yeah. No, but you did fix it, though, because, I mean, you took control and uh, made a plan. Yeah, you stepped in. So you're, that's fixing it right there because, you know, you follow through your plans and it becomes what you have now. So absolutely, awesome! Congratulations!
0: So, you wrote a book. I'm assuming some of this story has made its way into this book. Do, yes. do you have one there near you?
1: I and- sure do. It's called "Answers Behind the Red Door: Battling the Homeless Epidemic,"
0: and, so- and it's available
1: on Amazon.
0: Love it. I have mine on order. It didn't come in time for our interview, unfortunately, but that is an intriguing title. Tell me a little bit about what that red door is all about.
1: Yes. So uh, I mentioned uh, that we, when I started at St. John's, it was called St. John's Shelter. It was a 30 day emergency shelter for women and children. And what happened in the first couple of weeks, and I talk about this in the book is I had a woman named Katie come in our doors with her daughter, Tori. And, and mind you, this was 2006. The shelter actually was started on the steps of, of a church, uh, in 1985. So it had been around for a long time. Oh, Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, it had been around for a long time. So, uh, again in 2006 within a couple weeks of my my getting there a woman named Katie and her daughter Tori came in and a couple days later a woman named Shelly and her two boys came in and i was shocked to learn that Katie and Shelly were actually sisters but the bigger oh, shock for me was that 25 years earlier they had lived now 20 years earlier i'm sorry they had lived at st john's with their mom And it was in that moment that I said, you know, we just can't be a 30-day emergency shelter and think we are really helping these women and children change the trajectory of their lives. So that began the 13-year journey, building out a program that, uh, again, back in 2006, we were serving about 100 women and children a day. When I left, it was about 280, but we were serving them over an 18-month period. And we were serving them in a way that addressed all of the issues that accompanied homelessness or that led to homelessness. Issues such as mental illness, drug addiction, criminal history, lack of education, domestic violence. Uh, You know, in Sacramento, which is where this program was based, we have a very ineffective public transportation system. A lot of these families had no. Uh, transportation. They didn't have job skills, less than, you know, 30% of our women had ever worked, yet they were single parent led, you know, for the most part, single parent led families. So we turned St. John's over 13 years into a comprehensive program that helped women address all those issues. We had uh, two restaurants and a daycare uh, center that actually Uh, served as job training programs for them. We had a mental health unit, a drug and alcohol unit, a transportation unit, and and expanded not just the the breadth of services, but the number of people served. In that process, what we realized is St. John's Shelter is not really an effective name anymore for us. And so we changed our name to St. John's Program for Real Change. And we use the red door as our logo. We, you know, changed our logo in that process. And the red door is, uh, you may know, uh, has, you know, a lot of religious symbolism, but it also is a, is a symbol of good luck and feng shui. It's a symbol um, back in slavery times. The red door was a place you knew you could escape for safe haven. And wow. as we did that, we actually painted every single door uh, to every single room at St. John's and the front door um, red. And we used that as a, you know, when you, the the door in and of itself has a lot of symbolism, you know, you you open it and you close it. That's an, you know, that's an actual action. You choose whether or not you're going to walk through the threshold and close that door behind you, right? So we used that door uh, in in all of our teaching. We used it in, uh, you know, as a physical uh, right example of of, uh, you know, reminding people of the choice they're making to change their lives. and it and it was an existent in existence throughout our curriculum. Uh, and so, as I was writing this with one of my uh, former board members, David Flanagan, we, it just was so clear that this needed to be, you know, we learned a lot in our 13 years. And uh, you asked earlier, you know, if uh, we figured out how to solve homelessness, we absolutely figured out how to solve it for seg- for a segment of the population and, and, and a lot of learnings beyond that, which I'll get into later. But that's why we chose the title, um, Answers Behind the Red Door, because we really figured out Uh, over those 13 years with a lot of trial and error um, behind us, but what the answers were to this crisis. And that's what led me to uh, want to write this book. I I started writing it in 2019 as things were getting much worse and it's even worse now. So I I wanted to uh, explain the lessons learned, but I also wanted to in this book, and, and hopefully I've achieved that, Give hope because it does look hopeless out there in, in, in many communities, but it's not. It's not going to be an easy fix. It did not happen overnight. Uh, it's not going to be fixed overnight, but we can absolutely restore human beings and we need to restore human beings. All okay, right,
0: now more than ever.
2: I have so much I want to say and I don't even know where to start, but <laughs> you know, there's um, there's homeless in every state the union we have homelessness but some states are really really overburdened with it and i just wonder why i mean yeah. you know we have it in arizona the california is rampant and new york's rampant but but you know you sit there and you say why why i mean you see people that look like they're able to work they don't seem to ha- i mean of course we can't tell mentally but they seem physically able to work and they're just not working
1: well, so let me, um, let me start at the national level with a, a, a monumental policy change that happened in the Obama-Biden administration in 2013. Prior to uh, 2013, the federal government, which over time has become the largest funder of homelessness... That's one of the problems. I'll tell you, yeah. uh, you know, in the old days, the churches really handled this, and they handled it much, you know, at the community level. They handled it much better than the federal government. But uh, over like time, that. they become the the largest funder. And in two thousand and 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 prior to two thousand thirteen, they funded housing in in many different forms: shelters, transitional housing. Some permanent housing, which means lifelong housing, and we'll get to that at some point today. But they, they, they funded shelter, but they also funded services, services that help the homeless address the issues that accompany homelessness most often, including domestic violence for women in particular, including mental illness, including drug and alcohol addiction those things were funded in conjunction with one another. In 2013, the Obama-Biden administration said, you know what? We're not gonna fund all of that anymore. We're gonna fund one thing. We're gonna fund lifelong housing for everyone who's homeless. And that decision, and you can look at data upon data upon data, and we're gonna get to California here in a second, um, that decision, started to shift everything at, at the point that that decision was made and by the way it was based on uh a an idea for uh, you know getting the street homeless into housing and that idea was just you know fund the housing don't don't require services because they won't accept the housing there was never any research, uh, any data that underlie this decision to roll it out as a one-size-fits-all solution. And, and the data that has resulted pre-COVID, this, I mean, this data is pre-COVID at the national level, homelessness went up 15.6% overall pre-COVID, It went up 20.5% in the unsheltered population and pretty much before 2013, you know, there were some increases and some decreases, but nothing that significant. In California, you asked about California. California was the only state in the nation, still is, that adopted Housing First as its one-size-fits-all solution. It did that in 2016. The unsheltered population, again, pre-COVID, the unsheltered population in California went up 47.1%. Whoa! Overall, homelessness went up 33% and some change. And it's gotten worse since then. California, again, the only state to fully adopt housing first as a one-size-fits-all solution. That's what this policy is called. California is now home to 50% of the nation's unsheltered population and 30% of the overall homeless population in the United States of America. It has been a disaster, and we'll talk about many of the reasons why, but the primary reason why is there is not a one-size-fits-all solution to any of our major ills in this country, and certainly not to homelessness.
0: Right. right so let me ask a couple of questions first of all i don't want to let um reagan off the hook either because didn't some of this start and i might be talking way out of out of my level of knowledge but didn't some of the homeless start when all of the uh, mental health facilities were closed down because somehow that was unkind um to to people you know to
1: have them cared for in yes, a facility. You know- so uh this is a, a long discussion, but let me try and summarize. you know, uh, under Kennedy, uh mental health was nationalized, if you will. The federal government got involved in mental health and uh, and developed you know a program including institutions, based on um, some people who really didn't have a lot of knowledge in this area. Mm-hmm. And Reagan often gets, you know, a lot of criticism or credit if depending on who you're talking to, um, for shutting these down, but he shut them down because they were highly ineffective. The data was showing that this model, was not an effective model for rehabilitation um, and you know any sort of uh progress in the lives of these individuals. The intent was when those were shut down that a new system would be developed. But for whatever reason, uh you know, it it there wasn't a new system developed. But People need to understand that what was being done at that point, and certainly we've seen lots of movies. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, and you know, lots of these movies who um, that, that depicted some of the things that were going on in there. Um, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of ineffectiveness in that system.
0: Sure. Well, I feel like this whole story is kind of like that thing that says, "I'm." Pr- from the government and I'm here to help and the help really doesn't turn out to, to be that. And that whole one size fits all thing is a disaster, no matter as you said, what the, the, the program is, but, um, the people in California, you said they're 50% of the homeless in the nation are currently in the state of California. 50% of the unsheltered,
1: unsheltered unsheltered population. Yes.
0: Are are people migrating there to be to, to that for that to be their base, or were these people that already lived in California and then became caught up in a a bad time of their life, and now they're? Um. And is there a difference between unsheltered and homeless?
1: Yeah. So unsheltered means uh, they are uh, largely it's largely the street homeless. Um. So it's people who are not uh, living in any formal domicile whether it be a shelter or transitional housing um it it uh it typically means street homeless um so there is a difference right so uh, the the people that lived in the program that i uh ran for 13 years in california would be considered sheltered not unsheltered right okay so uh, so your question was um has Please California repeat
0: become repeat a magnet repeat. for people to go to or are yeah, people already in California?
1: It's a fantastic question. Uh, so HUD, which is the federal you know department, of housing and urban development, um, HUD uh, administers, well, it's administered at the local level, but HUD requires uh, a, a biannual count of homelessness at the local level for any jurisdiction receiving HUD money. In that count, there is a survey that is done by volunteers that uh, asks questions such as, and by the way, these um, the count is done usually around five o'clock at night or seven o'clock at night till like two in the morning. Um, so it's dark. It's done in January. It's dark. Volunteers administer it. And then you have people who... You know, at that time at night, there uh, there's a lot of self-medication going on. Um, uh, there is also a, a lot of mental illness, um, sometimes both, oftentimes both. And it's dark at night, and you're you have a stranger knocking on your tent asking you questions such as, you know, where are you from? <laughs> um, do you do you do drugs? Right? Do you um do you consider yourself an addict? Right? I mean, so the count is inherently flawed and as a result uh there's data uh from hud that says you know most of the homeless become homeless in their city of origin or their you know the the place they were living most recently that that same survey will say only 25 to 30% of the homeless are struggling with mental illness and or addiction. I can tell you, and and there's been studies done since, in the program that I ran for homeless women and children, 78% of our women were struggling with addiction, 70% mental illness, 70% domestic violence, 60 65% criminal histories, 50% didn't have a high school diploma or GED. I can go on and on. There was a an analysis done of the HUD data, and the uh, by the UCLA Policy Lab, and what they found was that HUD data was very very off, uh, and and they found that about seventy five to eighty percent did in fact struggle with mental illness and addiction, and seventy percent with physical disabilities. Um, but they also they didn't dive into the question of of city or county of origin. Um, but there has been some, uh, you know, smaller studies done of that data. and and in, in San Francisco is a great example of this. Their policies are so attractive in terms of the public subsidies that people are given when they get to San Francisco and declare themselves homeless.. Uh, and the uh, availability of drugs uh, and the lack of law enforcement around you know public drug use. so you're seeing and and then you know the permissiveness around theft, right So in cities like San Francisco and LA, you're seeing uh you know people uh, being able to literally walk out of a store with 990 dollars worth of merchandise and no one's even, following them or even, you know, they can't because the, you know, the prosecutors won't prosecute and it just uh, creates a lot of issues for the, uh, you know, the store and its employees. So, uh, so there's a lot of uh, uh, local examples of uh, that data not being, uh, meaning the data that shows that most of the homeless are from the city you know, or from the city of origin uh, of their homelessness is showing that that data is very skewed, just as the addiction and mental illness data is. Mm-hmm. However, there's a new study out of the Benioff Institute in UCSF that has reiterated this, uh, this point that most of the homeless are homegrown in California, and we're having to battle this right now because there, the, the, the methodology of the study was as flawed as HUD's meth- methodology, and it's not uh, really accurate. I mean, in, in some places, maybe so, and more rural communities, maybe so. But in the larger cities, again, that have the permissive policies that we just discussed, uh, there's a lot, a lot of data showing uh, an influx. Wow. If
2: I was homeless, I yeah. think I would go to California.
1: Yeah.
2: You hear about all the fantastic benefits you get for being yeah. in California.
1: Yeah.
2: But so Michelle, if if I was the president of the United States, I think I would ask you to become my uh,
1: per- person
2: for homeless people to to remove homeless. What would you do? I mean, what can we do about it? Mm-hmm.
1: So the first thing we should do is not, is is get rid of uh, Housing First as a one-size-fits-all solution. Not only is there not a one-size-fits-all solution, but Housing First does not as as a one-size-fits-all work. And I shared some of that data earlier. Number two, we absolutely need to return to funding uh, mental illness, drug and alcohol addiction, domestic violence services, employment training, We need to help people address the issues that often, most often, accompany homelessness. And the the lack of doing so is not only setting us up for very significant problems in the long term, it is not freeing people to be all they are, are meant to uh, and, 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 and are designed to be. It is holding them down in dependence mm-hmm. and, 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 and preventing them from realizing their potential. And it is, I call it, one of the most oppressive policies in this century. And I very much believe that. And I would love to join you as president of the United States <laughs> in turning this around. Um, the what? third thing i I would say is we need to give uh, communities flexibility uh, to do things, you know, Phoenix looks very different than San Francisco that looks very different than Austin that looks very different from Dallas that looks very different from New York. We need to give communities the flexibility to do what they feel needs to be done to, uh, you know, move the homeless into places of restoration and uh and and growth and prosperity. And that can be done and again that's why i wrote answers b- behind the red door, but right now communities are very hamstrung by these policies. The fourth thing i would say is never ever and we talked about the, you you talked about this at the beginning. Never say end homelessness. It will never end a, 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 as a as a uh illness uh in our country it's it's biblically uh stated but it, it it's just anyone who's been in the field will say this you can end homelessness for individuals and the book walks people through how to do that but we can we should never anyone who says end homelessness when you see that from them turn around and run away as fast as you can because it is such an empty promise it mm-hmm. is so uh it just sets us up and sets them up and it sets the homeless up. It sets all of us up for failure.
2: Yes. And, and I, you know, I'm sympathetic to the homeless. I want to help people that are homeless and I physically, I want to help, but the thing is, how do you know, I want to help people that want to help themselves. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just give somebody something that tomorrow they're in the same place doing the same thing, but I, I, we need, there's people out there that want help that need help that will do something with the help and there are others that just don't care mm-hmm. and i i wish we had a uh, little labels on their head that you could tell who that was <laughs> because sometimes i feel guilty cuz i don't help someone but then i you know i i just don't i don't
0: sometimes know sometimes you're so, helping them stay stuck i right, think is what right. he's
1: it, no he's it's saying. a very and and you know again uh, everyone is an individual and what is uh, motivating to one individual may not be motivating to another. Um, And I, I talk about this a lot in the book, but my, uh, my response to that would be number one, find an organization that helps restore human beings that are struggling with homelessness and, and volunteer there, give your money there, really support those organizations because those organizations are not qualified for public funding. Because those organizations require service engagement, such as mental health counseling, drug and alcohol counseling, employment training. They, And the reason I know this is my organization lost a million dollars in annual funding in 2017, not because of our outcomes, but because all of a sudden requiring employment training and requiring budgeting and requiring... Uh, you know, engagement and, you know, and, and sobriety, uh, those things all of a sudden became, Bad. you know, wrong and passe. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. organizations that are still surviving uh, mm-hmm. under the, the model of really helping restore people, they need our help. There's no help at the federal government level and at the local government level because the federal government uh Distributes most of its funding through the local level. So they control policy and funding, not just at the national level, but at the local level. So support those organizations with your time, with your money, and encourage those people. Uh, you know, when I was running St. John's, I kept my business cards and I handed out hundreds and thousands of business cards over my 13 years. And I, I never gave money, but I said, my cell phone is on this card. Call me, and I will help you find a place if you want to find a place to, you know, to. Because mm-hmm. my organization was women and children, and not everyone, you know, uh, there was men, and you know, yeah. uh, lots of people I ran into. But you know, find an organization, give out their business cards, uh, encourage people to go there to get the help they need. It's 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 not going to uh, happen if we're enabling them yes. to continue in the situation that they're in. Uh, so, but I, I do need to say a lot of those organizations that were so effective have you know, ended up closing their doors or, or shifting to the housing first model because they're following the money. They're following the government money.
2: So your organization, you started out that they were in for a month. They could stay for a month. And you saw that that wasn't working because they need more time uh when you give them the extra time what how many do you think you've really helped percentage-wise that really helped that when they came out of your shelter they were set
1: well again we didn't call ourselves a shelter um after right. uh, you know a couple of years but you know the thing that uh we broke our uh success into five uh kind of buckets Not everyone who came in needed to go all the way through the program. So the first, you know, bucket was, you know, stabilization, getting people. We had people who came in and there's a woman named Carla uh, that I'll use as an example. Carla was suicidal. She was severely addicted and she had mental illness and she needed stability. She had a job, but she couldn't keep her, you know, she had to keep going on leave of absence because she couldn't get her her mental illness and her uh, addiction under control. So she left us after two months and, and she continued to come back and engage with us, but she didn't need to live with us for longer than two months. She had a place to live. She had a job, but she needed that stability and that footing that she just couldn't get on her own. Then there are people who like Alicia, and she just literally while we were talking here uh she sent me a note um alicia was a mother of nine she came to us at 47 years old she had lost custody of all of her kids but two she had never worked a day in her life she was a very severe addict and she took about two and a half years uh, because she had a, a a hepatitis issue in the middle of her stay that she needed to go to the hospital and and get taken care of but today so this was probably in when alicia was with us and her two daughters hillary and memes it was probably around 2011 or 12 alicia got a job at a local business in rancho cordova and this is 12 years later she still has that job she's reunited with all of her kids she never yeah. even worked before and she was 47 years old. She has her GE, she has her high school diploma. She's sober, right? So s- success looks different for every individual, but I would say if I were to you know guess on how many people are living much better lives right now, I would say it's probably 80 to 90%, that but awesome. not everyone has stayed on that path. And certainly the pandemic, uh, you know, was very hard on uh, a lot of people, including uh, our women, especially in California, because of the isolation and uh, and the lack of services available to people who um, are struggling with addiction or mental illness. Uh, so we saw more deaths. Uh, I, I wasn't with St. John's any longer at that point, But we probably lost five or six women uh, Mm -hmm. to either suicide or addiction during that period of isolation, Right. extreme isolation. Well, well, thank you
2: for what you've done. That is awesome.
0: Absolutely. So we could keep talking forever, I guess. Yes, yes. Uh, But our time is getting short. You told me to shut up. Yeah. I did not. I wrote him a note and I said, "Time, like look at the time." What does that mean? Um, Okay, so I do want to shift gears just a bit because we know each other because of the Independent Women's Forum. Yes. I just want to tell our our listeners and viewers a little bit about what that is, and then ask you what you hope to do with your uh, visiting fellowship. So the Independent Women's Forum is the leading national women's organization dedicated to developing and advancing policies now there's that word policies again and that can be real tricky and so i think they're smart that they're bringing in people like yourself and me to talk about the second amendment because we can get into those weeds and the nitty-gritty of what's good and bad about policy right and uh, they want policies that are more than just well intended but actually enhance people's freedom opportunities and well-being, and they uh, use the news, podcasts, blogs, um, and their topics are generally, the Independent Women's Forum's topics are economic opportunity, energy and conservation, culture, law, national security, and Second Amendment issues. And you you described a little bit of a gilded cage, like a sick little gilded cage that the government has created for the homeless issue. So that is a policy that doesn't work. And the, the idea of freedom and opportunities and well-being, if that's at the core, which it is of the IWF, the Independent Women's yeah. Forum, and also the work that you've done, um, I just think that, that that makes such sense that they have brought you on this year as a visiting fellow. But I wanted to ask you, what do you hope to do with your time? Uh, during this fellowship?
1: Well, uh, similar to uh, why I wrote the book, right? I, I, I absolutely want to help people understand what the, the policy ramifications of this one-size-fits-all uh, approach to homelessness that has now been, by the way, uh, when they rolled it out in 2013, President Obama literally said in writing, it would end homelessness in a decade. And we are a decade later, and it is the worst it's ever been in our country. Um, but I definitely want to bring awareness uh, to that policy to what's needed. But I also want to give people hope. Again, similar to the, the the book, I I want people to understand that people can be restored. And I have so many. There's eleven stories of of women in that book, but there's so many more that I could have written about that you know, people who, you know, they, I'm friends with so many of them on Facebook and they'll send me a note and they'll be like, you wouldn't believe it. I took my family on vacation for the first time ever. And, you know, I have a savings account and I, there are women, single mothers in California who are homeowners now that went through uh-huh. our program just four years five, six years ago. So it's absolutely possible for the vast majority of the homeless population. I would say between eighty and ninety percent, they can lead lives that are so uh, free of addiction and uh, dependence uh, and 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 lives of prosperity. But we need to support them in doing that and and lead them um, in a way that current policy doesn't. So. I really hope to bring light to this and, and hope. Uh, I also am very concerned, uh, in particular, that uh, the federal government really uh, excludes uh, homeless families largely from their uh, counts and their funding, and that that it's just not such. It's it's a moral failure, but it's really setting us up for a long term problem if we don't. Uh, help these families get the help they need when they're homeless uh, and, you know, struggling with these issues early on uh, to, to to get back on a right path. So uh, I'm, you know, also helping to, hoping to uh, really bring awareness to that issue in particular, because there's no other organization talking about it in a substantive way. Wow.
2: So what we're saying is the government's one-size-fits-all policy doesn't work and that if they would change that and forget about the one size fit all, that these people would become taxpayers. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Many and, of and, them would. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But, but so, the policy today just puts them in housing for life. Doesn't require them to work. Doesn't require them to be sober. Doesn't require them to do anything more with their lives ever. Oh, Isn't ever. that
2: kind of what so. it feels like the government's trying to do anyway, <laughs> yeah. purposely? not yeah. they're just purply bring everybody down so that they can be controlled
0: yeah so i have one more quick question before yes. we have to dive off of here how much of a issue or how much you know because there resources there's only so many right and we've got this whole border issue we've got people just flooding in and i know that's not the border issue is not your topic but are we seeing a competition for the resources for people that you know they've just arrived how are they supposed to have anything um are are they also part of this you know housing for life situation or how does that work
1: well it depends on where they go uh you know i I actually wrote about this not that long ago for new york city uh they're facing a, a, a double if not triple whammy because new york City. Uh, obviously is a sanctuary uh, city. So they're um, attracting a lot of uh, the folks coming over the border that are not going through the legal process. And number two, uh, they have a right to shelter policy. So Mm -hmm. all of the people that come there uh, need to be sheltered. And New York is literally, they've run out of, they're leasing and spending billions of dollars on hotel rooms, hotels, hotel rooms for this population. Meanwhile, the homeless are n- not being treated in um, nice hotel rooms, right? Um, but but what's more, they're not getting uh, any significant aid from the federal government. And I am really concerned about what's going to happen in New York City. I mean, there's there's no wonder that so many people are fleeing. I mean, they're fleeing because of policy. They're fleeing because of of um, of taxes, but they're also fleeing because of what's happening on the streets there. And they have set themselves up for an an impossible situation. They need to shift gears, policy gears, in order to be able to manage. Uh, you know, both the uh, People coming across, you know, people coming across the border uh, illegally, and and the homeless population, and they're not doing a good job of either right now. But 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 you know, I don't know who would. Uh, the first thing they need to do is change policy, and and not um, and not uh, and not uh, bind themselves to having to take care of everyone who comes there.
2: But Michelle, we can't change policy because that'll put egg on our face. I mean, we can't, you know, and it's true. So so they're just going to dig deeper down in the hole because they're afraid to just, hey, this isn't working. Let's so change crazy. it. But I was just thinking when you guys were talking, I go, hmm, if I want to go to New York, I'll just go there and tell them I'm homeless and I'd get a hotel.
1: I wouldn't have to pay for a hotel. Exactly. Wow.
0: Oh, my gosh. But anyway, so it's,
1: it's, it's upside uh, down. Well, no, there, you have you, to tell them you came across the border illegally oh, and then you get right, a hotel. If you right. tell them you're homeless, you get put in a place with cockroaches. <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> well, yeah. you have given us hope that there are uh, programs that work. Um, and it it does take work. And a lot of times the government comes in and mucks it all up. And while I'm sad that you don't have access to the, those dollars, maybe, again, going back to that gilded cage idea or the control uh, the it's control, a control idea, maybe it's better that, that you don't have that access to money. But we, individual citizens, need to reach out and help and yeah. step up the way right. that, um, that we know we should. Even knowing- though we are taxed to death. And sometimes I think, because we're taxed, we think, well, we've done our part for charity, right? right? Because the government's going to do it for us, but mm-hmm. they don't do a good job. All right, we've got to get out of here. But thank you so thank much. You, I am girl. excited to meet you, to be doing this work at the IWF with you, and to have had this opportunity to uh, talk and introduce you to our audience. I know this isn't really a a Second Amendment issue, but homelessness. Homelessness impacts all of us because of sure. all the reasons that we said. So yep. I think it's appropriate.
2: Well, how do they follow her?
0: Hold your book up one more time and talk yes. to us about how we can buy that and follow you.
1: Answers Behind the Red Door, available on Amazon. And I'm um, on X, you know, formerly Twitter, at Steve Michelle, on LinkedIn and on Facebook. Though Facebook I usually use for uh, more personal uh announcements. But anyway, would would love uh would love to have you get the book and reach out to me and share with me your thoughts. Um and uh, really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. And I have a feeling we'll be talking again because this issue isn't going away anytime soon. Well, I have 37 more questions. I so. know it's true. <laughs> We're definitely gonna have you on again.
1: All right okay. thank you so I much for
0: for what you're doing. Uh, and you just God, God bless you for the work you're doing.
1: Likewise. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: bye Bye-bye. Wow. Well,
0: Steve. I, great. I have not had goosebumps as many times in, in any other interview I think we've ever done, but she would say something and it would resonate with me. Such truth right that it would just give me goosebumps it's and...
2: interesting to be the policy thing i mean we've been in business 20 well, all our life but we've been in business 25 years basically here 21 25 who counts anymore
0: well we've been married
2: for 30 right. how but, many uh 38
0: <laughs> so we've been in business
2: okay. all yeah but time. but we got into a major business 21 years ago Fair enough. and where we had several employees and you know every business has to have policies yeah well, that's I'm true. a firm believer that no policy fits, you know, fits everyone. Right. And that my biggest struggle in the 21 years, even to this day today, mm-hmm. is that you have a policy, but it's morphs, it changes, mm-hmm. it adapts. There are certain circumstances where things don't apply to that. Mm-hmm. And you have to have enough sense to know what, where can you make these changes? Mm-hmm. What can you do to make changes? And that has been a big struggle because I've had people that are firm. This is the policy. This is the policy. Do not change. But then I've had other people say, "Ah, no worry about it." Would you you need a happy medium, yeah. right? So yeah. anyway,
0: it's so true. Seeing That's... her
2: when she you know helped that organization, they had policies. I'm sure she morphed and adapted them to to fit. You have so, to right. when
0: you're dealing with individuals. Um, like she said, everybody's life circumstances are different. Right. They're, their level of commitment to the program is different. Their ability to, to break the rediction cycles are different. Right. Um, but 80%, she thinks or more awesome. have come to a whole new way of, of enjoying their life and, and being fulfilled in life right. rather than just plotting one day through the next. Um, wow. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Yep. Well, we have got to get on out of here. So, Thank you again to our amazing guest, Michelle Steeb. Thank you to the Independent Women's Forum for bringing us together, right, as both uh, visiting fellows. Of course, I'm going to use uh, my time as a visiting fellow. I've already written a few blog articles and uh, a fun one called Two Truths and a Lie. So that's going to be fun about the Second Amendment. Uh, We're going to be doing lots of work. Really just a continuation and expansion of what I'm already doing uh, to advocate for um, individual citizens to step up and be involved in protecting their rights, uh, including and especially their Second Amendment rights. But thank you to our awesome guest, Michelle Steep. Go get her book, get educated, figure out how you can be a help. Uh, Thank you to our amazing audience, our listeners and viewers. All over the planet, wherever there is internet, we have people who are hungry for this uh, information that our subject matter experts bring to the airwaves. And then when you out there take these conversations into your homes, around your dinner tables, into your carpools, that's when real change happens. Because now you're, you're really impacting those around you to bring them into the conversation. Right. Um if you would like to rewatch any portion of this video or any of our videos go to YouTube or Gunstreamer uh one of those wherever you get your video content and when you do please hit the subscribe and the notifications button because what? why why because that tells those platforms that you value what we talk about on here and it gives us a little bit of a cushion and a hedge against getting canceled because that seems to be all the rage these days is canceling unpopular uh, ideas and if you want to listen to the audio only version of this show or any of our shows that we've done over the multiple years go to our website gun wow these noises that are popping up on my computer i apologize Uh, gunfreedomradio.com click the on demand tab and binge listen to your heart's heart's content content. that was your line and I'm so distracted with what's going on in my computer I I stepped Uh, on it I apologize Um, and if you want to see photos and bios of all the work that all of our guests have done go to the guest tab it is a huge resource and um, when you spend time there we don't hate that all right. So what are we going to do now, Dan?
2: I don't know. You tell me. I think <laughs> we're, we're going to pray for our nation. We
0: are. We're going to pray for our leaders. How about the ones we don't particularly care for? We're
2: going to pray for justice. Okay. With our leaders. Yeah. That answers the next question. Yeah. Right?
0: <laughs> Equal if I'm and praying, blind to justice. If I'm praying going for justice. The whole Hunter Biden thing. Yes. If I'm
2: playing for you know praying for justice to be done. That kind of tells you what the next one. Pray for all of them.
0: Yeah, we still. Need oh, I guess to pray so. For
2: yeah, pray they get a nice uh, prison cell with a. Because <laughs> I mean, did. I did. I didn't. I didn't, I didn't say that.
0: Sitting in the studio on Tuesday, August first of twenty twenty three, and right now the whole Hunter Biden, Joe laptop. laptop craziness is going on with the DOJ gun buying with Be- tra-
2: gun buying felonies like, and
0: seeming as though they are playing favorites. And so that's what that's about. But um that's a different topic for a different They wouldn't play
2: favorites for anybody in that. No. no, They politics
0: are not at all involved in our justice system these days, right? Right. All right, where were we? We were We're saying goodbye. Maybe especially for the ones we don't like. And until next time, be good to each other. Have a great week and God bless. Bye bye.